Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Matthew Feeney. Joining us today is Andre Ilarionov, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. From 2000 to December 2005, he was chief economic advisor for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Ilarionov has also served as the president's personal representative at the G8. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Andre. I'd like to start with uh, with you before we get into politics, uh, uh, your life uh, before involvement in political things. Where were you born? Um, I was born in a small town near St. Petersburg in uh, that uh, former Soviet Union. So, and I grew up my first thirty years under the Soviet Union. So that life there was pretty different. Uh, compared to what we have either here in the United States or even today in Russia. It was, it was a totalitarian communist regime with a very special rules and a very special type of life, So, which is rather hard to imagine for anyone who did not have such an experience. What did your parents do? Uh, my parents were teachers. Uh, my mother w- was teaching uh, in the preschool. Um, college, uh, kind of giving uh, basic education for those who were working with kids with, in kindergarten. So kind of development of the um, language, uh, the kind of uh, mind, uh, some kind of the, the kind of basic stuff. And my father uh, initially was a teacher, and after that became the person who was teaching all the teachers, uh, teachers uh, how to teach Russian language uh, at the schools. So and he became uh, very uh, advanced and very some kind of good specialist in uh, this particular area. He had written five books. Uh, my mother written one book. So they just kind of they kind of teach. Uh, it's a family of teachers uh, with some kind of uh, interest and skills for academic work. So how did your parents? Uh, as I know, it was kind of a diff- different families, different social strata, different professions had different relationships with the Soviet regime in terms of having to be party members or things like that. Mm-hmm. Were, your, were your parents? Did they have to be party members to have their jobs? Uh, fortunately, they both of them they were not party members, and they had very negative attitude towards party and the communist regime. And I'm very grateful to them because from early on they were teaching me how bad this political system, uh, political regime. And one of the reasons of that, because the parents of of both of my parents have been repressed. They have been repressed and sent in gulag camps uh, early on, uh, long before I was born. So that is why uh, each of them did have experience in their own families. What does it mean uh, to be in the communist regime? And what what inspired you to go and study economics specifically? Uh, exactly, my uh, kind of my my parents. Uh, my father, first of all, who was always uh, talking over whatever you know the family dinner or in any other encounters about uh, how wrong the system 
and it just you, you cannot kind of even to reproduce how many times uh, he said so not only said but just attracted my attention to some kind of obvious stuff uh, whatever from deficit of food from the deficit of uh, basic consumer goods to absence of democracy uh, about gulag about the people who have been repressed killed uh, exiled and so on uh, they were not able to travel abroad and he had very good friends uh, in different countries, even in Bulgaria, in France. They had some communications with them, but he was not able not only to travel there, but at some point he was forced to even to stop communicating with those because it became dangerous for him himself. And also some of his friends and colleagues from the institute that he was working uh, were able to emigrate to the United States. And after that, any communication with them were forbidden. So that is why you know, they have accumulated huge experience. Uh, what does it mean to be uh, to live in such a Soviet communist system? Unfortunately, they gave me from early on, this is a basic understanding of this system. So that is why um, I started to think, okay, how to change it. And at some point, uh, I was thinking about different options, but at some point I decided, okay, the basis of any society is economics. So that is why it's necessary to change basis economics. And after that, all other things, including political system, ideology, culture, would follow the suit. So that is why I've chosen uh, economics uh, faculty, Department of Economics of St. Petersburg, then Leningrad University, and went there. And I'm, I'm particularly fascinated to hear what it was like to study economics in a communist regime. Uh, what, what were you being taught? What, what of any outside uh, economic thinkers were you uh, made aware of? All right, you were absolutely right because it was a Marxist-Leninist political economy, uh, which uh, has uh, not much common with the normal economics, whatever you can find uh, in any normal university, regardless in in the whole world, mm -hmm. microeconomics or microeconomics or price theory or whatever. Just you would not find it at all because the Marxist-Leninist political economy is a very different stuff. So, but uh, some kind of they tried to brainwash us, and some of us were brainwashed, uh, not me, because once again, no, <laughs> because, because once again, I am really thankful to to my parents who gave me really some kind of very good dose of skepticism and some kind of critical thinking. So that is why from early on we need to decide at the uh, third grade to choose because we all department of economics who would specialize in two actually two main speci uh, specializations one is political economy of socialism and another political economy of capitalism. But uh, it was obvious for uh, anyone who would like to make a career in the Soviet Union would go to socialism because it's an opportunity to some kind of to get to good positions, whether in education or in the government sector, in administration or whatever. Just it's absolutely clear. Those who, who would choose go to political economy of capitalism, really, really strange kind of uh, people because it's clearly they were not interested in career, in administration. There was kind of uh, sitting uh, God knows where and would be kind of reading books that would be absolutely irrelevant, uh, neither in the Soviet Union, but even outside of the Soviet Union, because we have been told that capitalism will die 
uh, and socialists will win. So that is like it's no reason. It's kind of like archive to study archive. So a few people could study archive, some kind of ancient Rome or middle uh, medieval period, but just it's absolutely relevant to the modern uh, days. Not me. I knew that it was a future. And that is why uh, on the third grade, I have chosen to study political economy of capitalism because I knew for myself, it's rather strange. It was 1980, so just it's at least kind of 11 years before the collapse of communism, five years before uh, Gorbachev came to power. So in the middle of the most depressed uh, situation, political, moral, cultural situation of the Soviet Union, and I voluntarily uh, have chosen uh, to go to study political economy of capitalism because internally I was absolutely sure that this is the future. That, and, were you sure that the Soviet Union was going to collapse? No, I didn't know the kind of when it happened, how it happens, but I knew that if I'd like to study anything serious, not just kind of the... Uh, artificial creation of the fantastic uh, dreams or whatever, just I need to study political economy of capitalism. And even political economy, of, and I studied, studied to, to, to study it, certainly it's, once again, it's not microeconomics, not macroeconomics, not the real economics as we know here. Nevertheless, it was much closer because it had something with reality. And even most of those books and all the studies were some kind of critical, so kind of critics of this part of element of capitalism, these critics, that critics, we were studying how it is wrong, uh, capitalism. Internally, I knew that, okay, maybe not everything is wrong, and just I need to understand how a system works. So that is why it was first step uh, for my personal education. This is a political economy of capitalism. You hear a lot of stories when you read about the functioning of the Soviet economy, how prices were chosen or or figured out. Is that for the your colleagues, your students who went to study the political economy of socialism, did they become experts, I'm putting that in scare quotes, in figuring out the price of coffee or something? Because I'm just trying to figure out what they would do when they got jobs in the in the party. I, I like your question and even your comments because even you, a very advanced person, could not even figure out what the situation was in the Soviet Union because not only in the other institutions, other universities, but even in the Department of Economics of Leningrad University, the second most important university in the former Soviet Union, prices were not studied. At all? They, at all. Moreover, not they were not studied. The word price or prices were forbidden. <laughs> it's no, no, no. I, just, kind of, I can't believe no, it. No, no, no. Yes, yeah, because yeah. if you would use words prices, in the very best case, you, you would come kind of under very serious suspicion. What are you talking about or what are you thinking about? Because it was not included at all. You, it, it, it's a rather hard to imagine once again. And I'm just kind of think. So uh, those people who were thinking about prices were very few people in the administrative structures in the power. So that is why even just those people who studied uh, at the Department of Economics, they did not study prices. Only if some of them who would graduate, who would accumulate some experience, and who could be promoted later to the, some kind of higher echelons of power, would be allowed to some kind of to jump in the particular business of assigning or setting prices for different goods. So that is why it's not even for general profession of economist. So that is why some of my friends who were thinking about why don't 
write something like a thesis, like uh, some kind of and of some grades. They kind of uh, talks about the prices. They were given very clear signal. If they would write to do, they would depart from the university right away. So that is why nobody did it. So that is why until year to 1983 in the Leningrad University, nobody was uh, studying uh, price theory. Nobody was using this term. Only in the uh, in the um, uh, course that was called. Critics of uh, bourgeois ideologies or critics of bourgeois political economy, we have touched prior theory and we, what some kind of, we have been explained how wrong those bourgeois ideology and the bourgeois political economists or economists who were talking about prices. So just to give our readers some idea of this strange world that they might not be able to imagine, uh, if if in Leningrad in the 1970s or 80s you walked into a bakery to buy some bread or food of, of some sort, uh, who was in charge of determining the price? I mean, was it a party member who would enter into the shop and tell the people who worked there? What was the mechanism by which these prices? All right. Uh, so there was a, a part of the uh, executive branch mm -hmm. because there was uh, executive branch did exist in the Soviet Union. <laughs> uh, it was a called uh, executive committee or Ispanitni committee. So just and they had the same particular branch. It was called price committee, uh, and with several people who were assigned or set prices for all goods and services. And how many people would be in this committee? Just, I don't know, but just for example, uh, in the, uh, so first of all, most of the prices in in the country have been established from one pl place, Moscow. So for the whole country? For the whole country. Just it's a very big country. The, it's, it's a substantial country, but it's gonna, the, uh, for example, I was living in Leningrad, okay, it's going to small town near Leningrad, but if I would travel to, not only to Leningrad, but to Moscow or to Estonia or to Uzbekistan, as I did, just I would find in the state shops uh, the same bread at the same price. So, for example, I still remember because those prices not only have been set up, but they were constant, they were permanent uh, for a very substantial chunk of my life uh, before this uh, price liberalization and reforms and so on. So that is why since I have been sent regularly by my mother uh, to the shop to buy food uh, for the family. So that is why I still remember the basic, uh, the prices for the basic food stuff. For example, I know the kind of the uh, standard loaf of uh, white bread cost 13 kopecks. Uh, some kind of the black bread, uh, 16 or 18, depending on the sort, or the one kilo of potatoes was uh, 10 kopecks. So, and so on. Just you can ask me, I, I still remember because, <laughs> because kind of for many years, for a couple of decades, those prices in my memory never changed. So that is why it was not hard to remember how, uh, how much was cost sausages or cheese or butter or some kind of whatever just you, you would take. Uh, even uh, vodka, uh, some kind of half liter of standard uh, vodka was three rubles, 62 kopecks. It kind of it's because it's kind of it's a part of national culture because many songs or lyrics kind of using this three rubles sixty two kopecks in different combinations because it's a very important product as you can imagine. <laughs> okay, so that is why it is it's very clear. And when the price of vodka later has been changed, it was increased to four rubles twelve kopecks. It was a huge, huge shock. 
not only economic shock because it was okay, 50, 50 kopecks more expensive, but it was cultural shock because people after decades of having some stuff or the food stuff or drink stuff, uh, the same uh, constant prices all of a sudden uh, found, oh, come on, it is not constant. It's not uh, some change. Yeah. change. There are some changes, and it is possible to change prices. That was really cultural shock. It's maybe even stronger the shock for some people who are living in a market economy that mm-hmm. would see the prices not changing. Right. So it's, did, it's much, much stronger shock. So did they have – I mean it seems that you know, I would think that the economic forces that are kind of hard to ignore would have people at least selling in a black market or being able to pay more out the back window or – or because you would need to have people who walked around and forced those prices. It would seem to me you would need to have a lot of people who were government people who enforced all these rules and that created a, a lot of ability for corruption of – of the system in general. You know, uh, it was a remarkably low level of corruption, at least petty corruption, because everybody knew prices everywhere and everybody could go to the shop and to buy all the stuff on these prices because uh, any attempt to change these prices to higher level, it would be criminal offense and those people who were involved will be sent to the jail. But even if it was, if there's no bread and there's a shortage no, or something, and someone goes to the guy and said, "Hey, I will give you twenty five kopecks for this." Right. Okay. So it just it, it is very uh, important to keep in uh, in our mind that uh, until last few years of the Soviet Union, the as what we would use in kind of in the modern uh, language of economics, the demand and supply were balanced in the Soviet Union, at least for most of the stuff. That's a very important one. So just it's kind of not very many people understand because people who are working in these economic committees, they actually knew some basic laws of demand and supply. So that is why for most of the stuff like bread, milk, uh, butter, sausages, cheese, so they were balanced. You would find it at least in such places like St. Petersburg or Leningrad or Moscow, uh, Baltic countries, Ukraine, uh, main industrial centers of Russia. So that was available. Uh, situation was different in smaller towns, in, provi- uh, in provincial towns, um, uh, in such places like uh, Central Asia, uh, Caucasus, uh, South Caucasus, North Caucasus. When I started to travel, I found for myself that it was also quite a shock for me, cultural shock, that a very important role in those places uh, had been played by the so-called kolkhoz market. So, and it was also it was legalized. It was not black market. It was legal legal kolkhoz market. So the kind of the called peasants or some kind of members of kolkhoz could bring their stuff that would grow on their plots starting from potatoes or vegetables or berries or fruits or even meat, uh, the cow or whatever, some kind of sheep, uh, some kind of or butter from that of their own produce to the market, kolkhoz market. Like and, a farmer's so, market today. Uh, yeah, it was called – here it would be called on in Russia even today, it could be farmer's market. But at that time it's called kolkhoz market, okay, because uh, only collective uh, companies can produce something. Okay, so the prices on kolkhoz markets were much higher than in the state uh, trade shops. 
very substantial. So that is why when I uh, found that they exist, I was shocked because uh, we in our family, we did not have such money to allow us to go to Kolkhoz market to buy this stuff because prices were three, five, ten times higher uh, than in the state shops. So that is why maybe in very special cases, for example, early summer when kind of new uh, fruits or berries would appear, kind of new season, we would allow, some kind of mother would allow the, to buy half kilos of, for example, cherries just, uh, just to please kids. But as a regular, we could not allow it. So at least for teacher's family, could not could not allow it. I don't know who could allow it to do it, but it was really, really expensive uh, for us. Um, yeah, but those who would allow, the, the quality was good. It was better. There was a choice. All these market forces did work perfectly over there. So, But it, it was, once again, it was not for so-called capitals. It's not for industrial centers. Um, I would say maybe half of the population of the country lived uh, through supply, through this kind of the state shops, maybe another half through this kohoz market or something like that. Black market did exist, but uh, at least according to my experience, I had some experience in, with the black market in the Soviet Union, but it was really very marginal. Very, very marginal. And it happened only on a very special occasions. For example, you have a New Year celebration. Okay. And that is why you'd like to have a very good, whatever, table, kind of to invite friends or family and so on. And that is why you need to have a bottle of champagne. And champagne is, for, for the moment, is kind of is in deficit. There is no available champagne in the, in the, uh, in the shop. That is why, but you need because it kind of, uh, the new is coming. And that is why just, you cannot miss this. Or you have some kind of some really good uh, sausage, some kind of hot sausage. It's kind of to kind of uh, to do, and it did not uh, exist. So that is why you would come to probably the same people in the state shops, and they could sell get you stuff. They could yeah, get you things. Maybe the, the prices, if I recall, maybe were twice as high as official state price. That would be manageable for this particular occasion. Or, for example, you have a wedding. Or you have a birthday party, or some kind of really very special occasions that would you really some kind of according to social standards you cannot avoid to have either uh, champagne or vodka, good wine or kind of sausage, something like that. But uh, at least for traditional families, for most of families, it would be only those occasions, not others. So, as you were studying economics uh, before we get to the post-Soviet stuff, I do have one question about access to reading people like Milton Friedman or maybe not maybe that's probably a little bit too extreme but like let's say Samuelson or something like that yeah. how did you ever get to read these people how did, how were you able yeah. to learn something more about Marcus? Okay, uh, probably it's a good uh, moment to just to tell a little story about how I uh, was writing my thesis, some kind of the PhD thesis on economics, um, uh, and how I used uh, the stuff that you are mentioning, or such type of stuff. All these uh, foreign economists were not, uh, not only available, they were strictly forbidden. It's, you could not find it. It's just you could not find neither in the library nor in the bookshops. Just they did not exist at all. So, um, and if you're a student, 
you don't need to do it. You, you just need to go to library and to read uh, Karl Marx or Friedrich Engels or Vladimir Lenin or some people who would just based uh, their studies on this Marxist-Leninist approach. Um, but if you're some kind of moved further, you, if you're already some kind of promoted to be a, uh, some kind of uh, applicant for writing PhD thesis, you kind of you have slightly more rights. So that way you can apply for uh, participating or some kind of reading in the special reading room of the public library in St. Petersburg, special Saltykov Shedrin Public Library, the central one, actually very good library. Uh, but for that purpose, you need to go through particular procedures. In my case, procedure was such. I was the assistant professor. Uh, I was writing my PhD, but I was also assistant professor uh, in the chair of international economic relations. So, and I was giving course on international economic relations, international economic organizations, and so on. And I decided, because I never read it, and I decided to read something uh, from the bourgeois economist, <laughs> so that is why. And I needed to get access to this particular room, which is a special, it's called Spetschrana, the, the re- reading room of special approach, special uh, some kind of permissions to, to get there. So I, I written uh, a special letter explaining how it badly I need for writing my PhD to read this bourgeois stuff. And I uh, went with this letter to the head of my chair. So this professor has signed this letter. After that, with this letter, I went to the dean of the Department of Economics. He looked at this. Okay, so he signed it. After that, I went to the uh, vice rector of St. Petersburg University, which is a pretty high position because uh, university had that time about six or 7,000 professors and about 20,000 students. So that is why it's not something you can do easily. You can kind of sign a special uh, time. If he has his time, you, know, you should be there. So this anyway. is the third signature you needed. Sorry? This is the third signature you needed. Yes, it was so, uh, signature. So he gave me. Actually, nobody gave any problems. So certainly it would be some particular situation. They say, oh, no, you, you, you are not allowed. And that would be finished. Fortunately, they all signed. And finally, I went with this uh, piece of paper to the head, to the director of the public library. Uh, also, he read this uh, letter in which I explained how badly I need to, to read. Samuelson, uh, economics, the basic stuff, the, as, as I remember exactly, it was a textbook of 1962 mm-hmm. edition. The Samuelson, Samuelson 1962 uh, edition. Yes, and I got it in 19... 19- 84. So it's kind of 22 years after uh, in St. Petersburg. And when finally I was given access to this particular room, uh, which was open only eight hours, the whole library was open for 13 hours from nine in the morning until 10 p.m. So it's 13 hours. This special room was open only eight hours from 10 in the morning until 6 p.m. So it was shorter. Um, and I went there and I found this uh, Samuelson Economics. It was only copy of this book uh, in this library, which means only one copy of this book for whole St. Petersburg, for whole St. <laughs> Petersburg region and maybe for the whole northwestern Russia mm-hmm. or Soviet Union. So maybe the other place where Samuelson could be found, it would be Moscow. That's all. So in uh, one of the rules of uh, having access to this room was not having any 
paper with you, no, no any notebooks, uh, just with you that you can carry out of this uh, room. Uh, you can have a special notebook with numbered pages. And the person would check uh, on, upon your arriving in this room and leaving the room whether uh, all these uh, pages are in the same place. And you cannot take this a notebook out of this room. You can just make notes. It's possible. You're allowed to do But you need to leave this notebook in this particular room in a special place. So that is why, uh, okay, uh, that was a procedure to get uh, to this particular book or similar books. Uh, okay, I got it. I started to read some else, and I was not very much impressed, frankly <laughs> speaking. I don't know why, but it just it did not impress me. It it sounded very strange, and especially in Samuelson textbook, there was a particular chapter about whatever convergence or some kind of about the importance of kind of have special relations with the Soviet Union. Soviet economy not so bad. It is it can develop very fast. I look at this. Come on, what a stupid stuff he's writing here. <laughs> because it's kind of it's. They told me about this bourgeois economy that is something uh, really dangerous. Soviets. But it's really it's kind of. It's a, it's it's a, it's a very bad stuff. So that's why I was not very much impressed. But instead of that, uh, since I already got into this particular room and I found what is there, and it was not very much impressive, I went to something which was absolutely open and which uh, served to me as a very important element of my education, economic education. It is statistics. Uh, public library. And St. Petersburg had huge collection of statistical publications from different countries, kind of the regular statistics, kind of annual books or yearbooks, uh, annual statistics uh, for United States, Canada, Sweden, Germany, France, whatever, for almost all countries in the world. Plus um, international financial statistics from the IMF, annual publications, monthly publications, and um, some kind of uh, on particular topics. And because it was mostly numbers, no no many words, so they would didn't the the authorities did not consider this dangerous for some kind of for poisoning minds uh, of uh, Soviet people. So that is why it was open because who would read numbers? It's absolutely <laughs> not interesting. I found it's absolutely fascinating because I look on some kind of concepts. I found very interesting money supply. M0, M1, M2, M3, what is it? I, just, I look into explanations because they have a little explanation there. And I look for numbers for each particular month, for each particular year. I some kind of constructed this time series. Uh, I look into what is the money supply, what is the credit emission, what is the budget deficit, what the national accounts. And I studied what uh, students in uh, normal universities in the West do study in their, during their courses. I studied through statistics that was available uh, in uh, from the Soviet Union in this library, thanks to IFS, International Financial Statistics, thanks to Government Finance Statistics, GFS uh, from the IMF, uh, thanks to the annual statistics publications from different countries. And through that, just I got a basic understanding of the modern economics. So where were you when the Soviet Union collapsed? Uh, uh, it was 91. I was in St. Petersburg. Actually, uh, 
in the uh, kind of I did participate very actively in the special group of young economists, historians, journalists uh, who has been created by my uh, two friends in 1986. Uh, that time was a called so-called perestroika. You remember, Mr. Gorbachev has pronounced such. Does that a, mean opening up? Is it? It's a like of opening up, and that uh, that was a time, very good time, because all of a sudden, countries started to open up, and it was possible. It kind of was a deliberate position of Gorbachev and the new leadership to to create different organizations, different clubs. So that is why uh, two of my friends have created a special club, some kind of discussion club. Discussion uh, for discussing different issues because we were economists, so that's why mostly it was economic stuff, a little bit political, a little bit historical, historic stuff, so on. And for five years, from 86 to 91, I uh, was a very active participant of this club, and it was another very important university. So that's why I would say the first university, my parents. Second regal university is the public library of uh, in St. Petersburg with these statistics. And the third university is this club, uh, was called Synthes, uh, organized by my friend Boris Levin and Andrei Prokofiev. So where we discussed some kind of the hot topics, or some kind of painful topics, uh, both from national political history, from history of the neighboring countries, and from economic stuff. And there, another very substantial breakthrough in understanding the world. So, and just by 91, once again, thanks to these young guys, because most of them were some kind of 25 years old, 26 years old, so just kind of, of my age. But we were open, we were very ambitious, so uh, we did not feel that we have any limitations, that we could do everything, as just for young people, as a very normal. So that is why uh, we were not uh, cautious, uh, some kind of, we moved forward. So, and by 91, we got pretty good understanding, uh, at least by Rush, by Soviet sons of that time, uh, what is necessary to do. For example, Andrei, uh, Boris Levin, uh, my friend, uh, in 1988 went with the idea that Soviet Union inevitably will be dissolved. So that he could not, uh, leave in this situation and it will be dissolved according to the national principle, according to the uh, principle of these republics. As you remember, Soviet Union was consisting of 15 republics. Mm. Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic uh, republics. Georgia. Uh, Georgia, Armenia. Exactly. So, and he, because he studied a lot of these so-called ethnic questions or nationalities questions, so he came with absolutely revolutionary idea. Nobody was, at that time, was even close uh, reach this even closer. Just he came. Okay, Soviet Union is doomed, doomed to fail because of ethnic issues, because of issues of nationality, not big. because of economics, not because of anything else, because of nationalities and because nationality are so different. The life in re- each republic is so different, cultural, political, e- economic as well. So just it and. Uh, under liberalization, political liberalization, economic liberalization, cultural, ideological liberalization, those uh, those republics would not be in the same 
uh, whatever political Mindset, yeah. uh, entity. So that is why it will be dissolved. It was absolutely revolutionary. You cannot imagine because it just personal in 1988 would say, okay, uh, Soviet Union could not uh, could not leave, and we had uh, many discussions and. Uh, are you saying he wrote it down, or did he just? Uh, no, no, it was it was an oral, oral. Because it was several reports on this kind of song. It was widely discussed in our uh, circles, even with some other people who became after that uh, leaders of the Russian so-called reforms. Okay, anyway, so we had a very special session devoted to his report, and somebody asked him, "Okay, you are saying the Soviet Union is doomed and will collapse, was kind of will be dissolved. How?" Many years you would give Soviet Union to to leave. It was July 1988, and I still remember how we were sitting near the fireplace because we got it not in the kind of the uh, we got in, in a nice place in the in nature uh, on the lake shore, so near the fireplace. And he said, "I think not more than three years." <laughs> it was July 88. As we know, August 91, there was coup, and after that, Soviet Union, uh, in a few months, ceased to exist. That's unbelievable. That just, I still do remember. That kind of the guy who, that time, was 26 years old, mm-hmm. kind of, who kind of gave the, such, a, such a clear prediction about the forecast, about the fate of the Soviet Union. And, of course, uh, after the collapse, you became very involved in... Russian government, and I, I think many uh, many of our listeners would be would be interested to hear your thoughts on the president of Vladimir Putin. Do do you remember first meeting him? Right. Okay. Fast forward. Fast Just forward. Many fast years, forward. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, um, in ninety one, when the kind of Soviet Union collapsed and has been dissolved, uh, there was a huge demand for people who understand a little bit in economics, because uh, because as we know, ninety five percent of whatever people have uh, some kind of uh, learned how to live under political economy of socialism. So that is why they did not have any clue about markets. So that is why those people who understood something mm-hmm. was very limited. And just we started to collect all those people and found maybe 30, 40 people for the whole country, such a huge country, but people who mm-hmm. thought about this. So that is why when the this collapse had happened, so we all have been mobilized. It was a total mobilization of anyone who understand a little bit into the market economy. So that is why I've been recruited mm-hmm. uh, as well as all other people into the Russian government. And we occupied different positions and kind of working on some kind of transformation. So, but it was 91, 92. It's a very special, very interesting period. Okay, maybe next time I mean, we can talk <laughs> about this. Okay, but uh, fast forward to year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, it was already so. Boris Yeltsin officially stepped down and said, okay, so he's not going to run for next uh, presidency. And he appointed uh, acting president, whom he appointed Mr. Putin. It was February 2000. Election uh, was scheduled for March 24th. And I have been in, I have been invited by him, by Vladimir Putin, to his dacha, kind of it's a real estate kind of uh, outside of Moscow uh, to discuss uh, future economic policy, future economic program. It was on February 28th, uh, year 2000. 
Um, and uh, as I was told, uh, Putin was looking for economic advisor to him. So he had some ideas whom he wanted to appoint um, as a minister of finance, minister of economy, prime minister, other position. But he did not have a – because he didn't study economics at all. He mm -hmm. studied some other courses and was uh, employed in some other activities. Had a killer man uh, silently. Yeah, so that is why he wanted to understand a little bit about economics. Some people suggested uh, that, okay, there is a guy who might be interesting for him. Actually, he saw about 10 people before me. And somehow he did not like them. And finally, some kind of somebody suggested, okay, why don't you meet that guy? So maybe you'll find something. Okay. We spent three hours with him. It was in the evening and it was very late. It was after 11 p.m. So it was already dark, already kind of everybody was falling asleep. Okay. So just I was uh, leaving his estate, his dacha, and he told me, okay, uh, so I'd like you to uh, suggest some kind of offer position of the economic advisor to me because everybody understood that he will be elected as a president mm -hmm. in uh, four weeks. And I said, oh, no, I, I'm too busy. Sorry, I cannot accept your offer because I have my much more interesting program uh, <laughs> in my institute because I was working in an institute of economic analysis and so on. He was visibly shocked because he didn't expect such a response. <laughs> okay, and that is why he, he said, okay, you're too busy for I'm going to work with me on a regular basis, but okay, can you come tomorrow? We can would continue our discussion about economic policy and economic reforms. And said, okay, I'm really too busy tomorrow because I promised to my wife that we will go to a restaurant with her. Okay, sorry. Just uh, <laughs> she asked me. I gave my word to her so I cannot do it. And just to, to make your life easier, I need to tell you that my wife is American citizen. <laughs> okay, that, just, that you would understand whom you are dealing with. Okay, he said no words, only his eyes became slightly larger. <laughs> okay, he would look at me and kind of – like shook hands and say goodbye. <laughs> okay. I just said to him, okay, goodbye. And I clearly understood that it was the first and last time that I uh, saw that person because after what um, we discussed, actually, it was one issue when we, during these three hours, we also touched the issue of uh, war in Chechnya. Uh, that was the time of the uh, Russian-Chechen War, Second Chechen War, and at some point the officer came to Putin uh, informing him about the Russian troops taking last stand uh, of the Chechens, again Russians, and Putin was very some kind of excited about this and he was sharing with me such a great news, such a his joy that, okay, we took them, we kind of crushed them and so, and I said, okay, you committed crime, you keep killing people. <laughs> Okay, because this war is a really crime. It's a crime. You're killing people, Chechens. You're killing Russians. And sooner or later, Chechnya will be independent. So that is why, uh, since it will be independent in any case, so it's better just not to kill people on both sides, but just to give them independence. Okay, we had a little conversation about <laughs> these issues. But, okay, so at some point he said, okay, 
Let's talk about economics. So that is why we have accumulated interesting uh, information about each other. So he knew, he learned about my views about Chechnya war. He learned about uh, my wife, who is American citizens, and just uh, he's a kind of the colonel from KGB, and is kind of thinking about the inviting on the position of economic advisor, personally, whose uh, wife is American citizens. Interesting. Okay, and also when he suggested, okay, let's meet tomorrow. He He's busy. Let's be my economic advisor. No, I'm not interested. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. So I was completely uh, sure that it was the last time that we see each other, saw each other. And I even forgot about this, almost forgot. Uh, okay, next day was a special day because it was the anniversary of my wife coming to Russia because she came uh, eight hours before on the odd uh, day of the odd year because it's a February 29th. So that is why anniversary could be celebrated only once in four years, not mm-hmm. in once in one year. So that's just a very special occasion. Okay. And March 1st, I was sitting in my uh, institute, was uh, writing some stuff on my computer and the telephone rang and uh, the person said, okay, but you kind of, you were busy yesterday, but are you busy tonight? I looked into my calendar and said, it looks like I don't have any special uh, occasion, uh, no any special uh, events for tonight. Okay, looks like I'm free. Okay, would you like to come to Dacia again? Let's discuss economic issues. Okay, why not? Okay, let's go. And I went there again. And we continued. So, and after some kind of two months of uh, almost daily meetings with Putin, because he invited me every is it every day or every second day? And he started to invite me to different travels with him uh, around country. And actually, I've been in some places in Russia where I've never been before. And I would never be uh, in any other circumstances because it's kind of it's, it's a very special places. And uh, I knew him a little bit because I saw him from the very short distance, how he behaves uh, with different people, what his attitudes and so on. And all of a sudden I realized that he's really serious about economic reforms, really serious. It was not a joke. It was not kind of a primitive approach, not superficial like other people with whom I worked before. He was absolutely serious. One story was really remarkable. Um, as you probably know, in the Soviet Union, on the former communist countries, there was such a uh, holiday they called International Women's Day, March 8th, so mm-hmm. which is maybe not very uh, some kind of popular in the West, but uh, in that part of the world it is popular. So that is why the day when men and boys are congratulating ladies, mothers, sisters, wives, and so on. So it's a, it's a very important element of the culture. So because Putin was participating in this campaign, presidential campaign, he went, he went to the city of Ivanova. Uh, it's a kind of center of textile industry in uh, Russia, and also so-called women's capital, because, they kind of, because of the industry, so kind of 70% of population are women. It's maybe awful for them, but it's a kind of, uh, <laughs> no, that's a story. So he went there to congratulate them with uh, this international holiday, uh, Day of Women and so on. I've been in Moscow. I didn't went to him with him uh, to Ivanova. And that day, it was probably March 6th or March 7th, somebody kind of stomped in my room in the institute, one of my colleagues in the institute, and saying, have you heard what Putin said in Ivanova? I said, no. 
And the person said, it's better for you to know what he said in Ivanov. Okay, what he said. He was talking about necessity to have economic freedom. Where? In Ivanova. To whom? To ladies in textile industry. Oh, my God, that's interesting. Because by that time, by March 6th or 7th, year 2000, the only person in the whole country who was using this expression, this term, economic freedom, was me, nobody else. And I was telling him uh, during our first meetings that the way to do, if we were talking about economic policy, is just to increase economic freedom. And I explained what does it mean, economic freedom, in terms of regulation, in terms of taxation, in terms of kind of expenditures, all just kind of different elements, not in detail, but just the concept. And each uh, day I was kind of explaining, describing, giving examples, and just kind of, kind of, and I gave him this idea: economic freedom. Actually, when I was trying to talk to Mr. Gaidar, to Mr. Chubais about economic freedom, they became really un- absolutely uninterested in that. Those kind of the first generation of the so-called Russian reformers. Putin became very interested. He was asking me here different issues and so on. And all of a sudden, when he went to Ivanova and he saw those ladies who are working on the textile industry, he started to talk about economic freedom to them and to the whole country and started to tell them how it is necessary, how it is important the country would be economically free. So he really believed in it, is what you're saying. And, no, no. And, and then you believed it, in it, him? It's, it's a different story whether we, he believed or not believed, but he was telling that. He was talking about that. And you can – Imagine the kind of the uh, whatever ideological earthquake that happened in uh, the government, in the authorities, in Kremlin, because all of a sudden their person, whom they consider his or theirs person, kind of their kind of grooming, some kind of educating, training, all of a sudden he started to talk about something that they have no clue about, economic freedom. So that is why they started to look around. Who that source, who is that source who could supply him, Putin, with these ideas of economic freedom? And they look around. It was not very hard to find the the problem. The source? Yeah, the source, because <laughs> it was only one person in the whole or country. the problem, as you said. Yes. Yeah, okay. They called me after that. Okay. All right. Looks like you are meeting with Mr. Putin. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Looks like it was you who were telling, telling him about economic freedom. I said, yes. Could you please come to us and explain what does economic freedom means? So, so I, just, I want to clarify who they are in this. So this I mean is, the Kremlin administration. I mean it's just some people because I was meeting with Putin personally. Yes. So there was nobody around. There was nobody, advisors, assistants, uh, some kind of new ministers, just only two people. And we spent, once again, the first night we spent three hours. Others will be about three hours, sometimes two hours. Hour and a half, depending on so the these, situation. So the people that called you were people who had served uh, in the government for, for a from, long time? Yes, from the, like some, somebody from the White House would be in, in the American situation. Okay. They just would be calling, okay, something, are you, are you meeting out with our president and you're talking about something that we have no idea? Mm-hmm. Okay, could you please come to us? And explain that we would understand what he's going to do, what is his understanding, that we, that we would include in his next speeches or whatever, just this concept, and that would be right, correctly explain that. So that is why I started additionally some little course 
uh, of education, of speech writers, of assistant, of the kind of presidential administration about economic freedom. So, and we continue our uh, some kind of uh, meetings with Putin for a couple of for two more months. He uh, invited me once again. Second, I, second time I also refused to join him, but when he invited me for the third time. It's a, according to fair tale. Uh, you need to kind of to pick up the third, uh, <laughs> uh, third try because there will be no fourth try. And by that time, by after two months, I learned about him. I knew him. Uh, I saw him in different circumstances, and I understood that he absolutely serious about economic reforms, uh, at least partially about economic freedom. And he's really serious. He's kind of serious person about that. He remembers. He's some kind of, and uh, some kind of. And I said, okay, that's a historic chance. This is a historic chance, not so much for me, but historic chance for the country. That after these ten years of previous so-called reforms, when the, these guys who claim to be economists or reformists or liberals, they completely destroyed everything. And this is a very strange situation. Colonel from KGB. With a very clear, some kind of the background, clear, very clear approaches. There is no doubt at all for me who he is. Nevertheless, in one particular area, economic reforms, economic policy, he is very serious about reforms. So, when you say that there was no doubt about who he is, no, but, but, I mean, but, but, did, you, did you? Would you consider that period when you were working with him and and spending all these nights together and? presumably just talking about economics, that you became friend, friends with him? Or is he the kind of person that you don't really become friends with? No, you, you cannot be friends with the uh, head of the country. And especially if you're both adult people, it's impossible. So if you're some kind of youngsters, if you're kids, if you're some kind of teenagers, maybe if you're in university, a student or something like that, there is a chance that you can befriend someone. But if you're adult person, especially if you're dealing with the head of the country, it's impossible to become uh, a friend. It's kind of it's, – it's a different type of relations. Nevertheless, that's, that's very important because uh, certainly I saw his approach in Chechnya. Also, his approach towards some particular what we will call human rights, at least for some story, was very clear. It was no doubt. But that time, I had an impression, actually, that was a very important element. It was a theoretical, uh, some kind of background for transformation that existed that time. It was a, actually the, only that theory existed. The theory actually based on some kind of materialistic approach or even to something Marxist approach. First, the most important part is economics. And if you change, change economic fundamentals, after that, slowly or gradually, whatever, economics would help to change other elements like social structure. There will be appearance of middle class. Middle class would have new ideas. That is why it would lead to new ideology and to new culture and so on. So that is why if you start with economics, not you yourself, but some other people, not maybe immediately, but after that, would uh, contribute to transition of the some kind of totalitarian communist society to free society. So that is why I consciously have chosen the work. Okay, I'm studying. I, I am kind of making first step with economics. And if I succeed or other people succeed with me, so that was somebody else would come later and with a social structure, with ideology, with politics, with culture, would make uh, some other elements. 
Now, just once again, fast forward because it's already some kind of 17 years since then. Uh, I I see how wrong this idea. I would say maybe not wrong, but, but incorrect. So it's just it's impossible to do like this. But that time, I strongly believe, you ask me, what mm-hmm. do I believe? Mm-hmm. I thought that it is possible to change. And that is why I unconsciously have uh, picked up this offer and said, okay, there is a chance. Let's do as much as we could do. Okay, and if it is possible to help to change his attitudes in other areas, it would be really great. Even if not possible, but I, I thought that it would be possible, that just at least we would do economic reforms. So I have a, a question, I suppose, outside of uh, economics. Most Americans will be familiar with Putin by watching the news about Ukraine and Syria and more recently the American election. And the question I would really like your answer to is, uh, what does Putin want? What is his worldview? What is his, how does he see Russia in the world? What does he want? Uh, what is his foreign policy agenda? Uh, that's, I think, been something on all of our minds recently. Uh, it, well, yeah, just to kind of add on to that, it's just some of the stuff like fomenting a, cu- a coup in Montenegro, if that in fact, it seems no. to be the case. They, they all seem kind of crazy. What is he? What is he going for? No, there are many stories that we can start from Montenegro or some kind of involvement in the U.S. election, or involvement in German election, or involvement in French election, or some kind of the not only involvement but actually participating in the Armenian coup in mm-hmm. 1999, or in uh, attempt to assassinate uh, candidate for Ukrainian presidency uh, Yushchenko in year 2004, and in real assassination of the uh, presidential hopeful uh, Chernobyl in Ukraine in 1999. So just, it's a... It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a long list of all this stuff. So that is why just we definitely don't have time to just, Mm -hmm. uh, even just to mention all of this, because it's kind of, it's already not dozens. It's, I I think maybe hundreds of cases, both within Russia and outside of Russia, because he's What's well, it's called foreign policy is pretty active. Yeah, let's go. If we can yeah. use such particular terminology. <laughs> All right. In terms of uh, uh, his, what he wants, uh, we need to distinguish at least two very clear periods in his uh, overall, whatever, 18 years presidency, because this year will be 18 years as mm-hmm. he's at the top of the Russian power. And this first period would be until year 2003. Uh, which I call this kind of the year of the radical turn. Before that and after that. And that year is coinciding with the Iraq war and with the decision of uh, George Bush to intervene into Iraq. This is a very important year because it has changed attitudes uh, and approaches of Putin radically. In the first three plus years uh, of his power, as a president, his attitudes towards West was extremely friendly. You probably still remember that he was the first person who called George Bush after 9-11. Yes, I do remember and that. And it was not a singer of uh, by coincidence, just because it was his attitude. He was really interested in establishing very good, very special, very friendly, maybe very special personal relations, which is slightly different from what is expected between leaders. Okay, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, uh, it is important to remember what his official attitude was towards NATO. But 
official attitude of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government from year 2000 to year 2003 was that Russia wants to be a full-fledged member of NATO. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, okay, that's that that's all a, seems like a crazy dream now. No, 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 no. It's it was very interesting, and it was not a joke. Yeah, he was talking about this both on the private meetings, in the negotiations with the foreign leaders, and in public statements. So that is, and he was pretty serious as with uh, economic freedom. So just kind of, he was pretty serious about. Okay, yes, he probably was not ready to abandon some of his bad habits. We should be absolutely accurate about this. But nevertheless, his intentions were very clearly. He wanted to be in the Western alliance, in some kind of special Western relationship. Actually, to some extent, he still wants to be uh, to be part of the West. So he wants meetings with Mr. Trump, as we know today, uh, not uh, with uh, Robert Mugabe too much, by the way. So just in kind of – he was not dreaming about to be invited into Harare or to Pyongyang. So he was once in Pyongyang in year 2000, by the way, with me. I was also in that kind of. It's unforgettable. Oh, you went to Pyongyang. Yes, wow. it was unforgettable experience, and just we were three days there, and I was uh, some kind of sitting on this negotiation with the father of this uh, Kim, who is sitting there, with, and that's a very very special stuff. Uh, what, Kim, what, Kim, Kim Jong Kim Jong Il. Uh, Kim, Kim Jong Il. Yes, oh, okay. yeah, wow. yeah. So very very special stuff. Uh, when uh, everybody there, uh, some kind of carrying guns. In the official negotiations, it's kind of it's not uh, kind of customer customer <laughs> kind of uh, in today's Russia. Strange, yes, I'm not yeah. talking about some other countries. Kind of to, to carry guns and some kind of like that. And they were pretty open that okay, finally, because it was the first visit. It was uh, July year 2000, and Putin was flying from Moscow to Beijing in China. We had the uh, negotiations with Chinese. After that, we flew to Pyongyang. Uh, we had three days of negotiations in Korea. And after that, we flew to Okinawa in Japan, where we had G8 summit. So that is why it was the first, one of the very first visits uh, of uh, Putin abroad. And that time, Koreans, or Kim Jong-il, uh, looks like thought, okay, finally, we have a our guy in Moscow, who would help us to some kind of to militarize, to continue preparation for the war. And they were openly saying, okay, finally, uh, since now we have a right guy in Moscow, we can f- launch a war against South Korea huh. and to destroy it. Uh, openly, absolutely. There's no, okay, and then it's kind of thing, okay, we need so many uh, thousand tanks, artillery units, uh, planes, and so on, just... And at the uh, concert in the evening, that was uh, unbelievable because they were uh, singing songs, um, Korean songs and Russian songs and Russian military songs. And there was a kind of – and with translation, without translations, and it was a kind of the main slogan were, okay, finally now with Russia, we will destroy uh, South Korean uh, capitalism and American imperialism. (laughs) And I kind of – we arrived there even just, okay, even Putin, I saw him and he was absolutely shocked because he was not having such a plan to destroy South Korean capitalism and especially American imperialism. <laughs> no, he was very far from that. So that is why it, it was quite a shocking for them. And after July year 2000, he never, ever traveled to Pyongyang anymore. So that is why, coming to the, your question about, okay, so he is not some kind of not sleeping through the night 
dreaming about uh, be invited into Harara or Topkhenyan. No. So he was dreaming about invited into G8, into Washington. Into NATO. Into Bonn, uh, into Berlin, into London, into Paris. And so on. He wanted to be a part of the Western world. It's absolutely clear. But he thinks and he's absolute some kind of firm belief that the world, the real world, is organized not in a such way as it is, has been described in textbooks or in Declaration of the United Nations, but it is organized in a way how big guys reached agreements among themselves. And if they reach agreements about the division of the world, so that's a real world. So that is why he wanted actually uh, with Obama to have a meeting and to have clear, okay, you have your sphere of influence and I have my sphere of influence. And I promise I do respect your sphere of influence. I'm not going to intervene there. Just don't worry. But please respect my sphere of, in, uh, of uh, uh, influence and you would not interfere there. And Georgia, Ukraine, Belarus, Baltics, it's my sphere of influence and interest and I can do whatever I like. I have free hand over there. Please don't touch it. And Syria, by the way, is also my sphere of influence because uh, Syria is my old client, the former Soviet client. So that is why you think of you violated some kind of unwritten rules of international order because you intervened in my garden. Well, this would, so his garden is all the former Soviet states. That's unclear. That's part of the no, question. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's, that's unclear. And that is one of the reasons why he wanted to this meeting with Obama. Now he's uh, insisting on meeting with Trump. That Okay, let's clarify borders of our spheres of interest. It seems like bargaining over the world. Because, because it was exactly what has been achieved uh, in the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact yes. in 1939 when uh, Ribbentrop uh, arrived to Moscow and in presence of Stalin, he agreed with Molotov about the division of Europe between Nazi Germany and the uh, communist uh, Soviet Union. To some extent, something similar has happened uh, six years later in Yalta and in Potsdam. Okay, uh, one part would be the same, Stalin, but on the other side would be Mr. Roosevelt, it would be Mr. Churchill. And the kind of the idea was to kind of to divide the world. Okay, this is the, your sphere of influence and this is our sphere of influence. And this is, will be Iron Curtain, as Mr. Churchill would call it later. So, and probably Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Churchill did not realize in Yalta, in Potsdam, when they, because the text was the same, but the content, the understanding of these words were different for Roosevelt and Churchill and for Stalin, because they said, okay, this is kind of free choose of their governments. Okay, and this would be free election. And for uh, Mr. Stalin, the free choose of power means that just I freely choose <laughs> the government for those countries. So that the interpretation of these words would be different. So that is why – Which is also what Putin is thinking, uh, it seems looks like. Looks like yes, because uh, that's exactly he, – but he wanted from earlier from Obama, now he wants from a Trump, some kind of um, legitimation or legalization of his pretenses, of his desires in these fears. And that is why if he would get 
orally or recently, some kind of information. Okay, we understand that you have a special, whatever, cultural, historic, political interest in Ukraine. Many American uh, experts uh, in many areas go, oh, we understand that uh, Ukraine has a very special uh, place for Russia because of history, because of literature, because of uh, politics, because of uh, religion, because of, of everything. They do not understand in the very best case. Maybe some understood. If understood, that is they're committing crime. But even I hope that some of them even do not understand that by saying so, they're giving Ukraine Over. politically to Putin. Yeah. Because uh, some kind of acceptance from their point that Ukraine or Belarus or Baltic countries or Georgia uh, kind of play some particular role in the Russian psyche in the circumstances of today means that they're giving those countries so or what their about, nations to to muster the Kremlin. So what about something like so so we shouldn't concede these points you're saying, but but why I mean Montenegro, the Balkans, I mean I you mentioned before that I mean, would Putin want Finland? No, that's just Montenegro would be exactly the same point. Because if you look into the law about the compatriots that have been adopted under Putin, that's a very interesting because there is a kind of at least four categories of the so-called compatriots. It means not only citizens of Russia, but also former citizens or those who have been born from the parents who were citizens of the Soviet Union or Eastern Bloc states. Or Russian Empire, and Finland would be part of the Russian Empire. What about – and former Yugoslavia would be part of the Russian Empire? And former Yugoslavia would be Slavic Brotherhood. Is that the fourth? The third Slavic one? Is Brotherhood. that the third one? Yes. Okay. So there's different levels. So that is why – okay. You have so what's a, the fourth one? Uh, uh, the Orthodox religion. Wow. That's – Sometimes that's it's like half the world, okay, pretty much. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not half, the half the world. No, no, no. But, but because it kind of, if you look into the concept of the Russian world, this is a concept. It kind of, it's a, on one hand, it's, it looks like it's a pretty cultural concept, and okay, it's just okay. Uh, Brits have this British Commonwealth where some kind of they develop many cultural projects, linguistic projects, and many nations are happy. Because it kind of it's kind of uh, access to British culture, to literature, to uh, whatever knowledge, it's great. French do francophonia. Also, some people are happy about that. Okay, Germans because after this uh, painful experience, they uh, produce this uh, Institute of Goethe, Goethe Institute, which also very good because uh, German culture is very rich and so on. Uh, Spaniards have uh, Cervantes Institute. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of it's a kind of regular stuff to do the culture. So that's why to create whatever Russian world or some kind of Pushkin Institute, it kind of looks like same cultural approach. Unfortunately. It is not only because Kremlin would like to put more into this cultural project. It's not only cultural project. There is a political element of this. And that is why Montenegro is considered to be uh, some kind of outpost of the Slavic Orthodox world in the Balkans. And that is why Mr. Putin, at least he thinks about himself, has particular rights there uh, that nobody else has. Well, so – we're almost out of time, but we got to get to Matthew. Sorry. We could talk for hours about this. Uh, but I, I wanted to uh, get your thoughts, that especially in this town, Washington, there's a flurry of debate about 
if the Russians were involved in uh, interfering with the last American election and if so, how involved they were and or, and why they would have picked a particular side. Uh, and I'd be very interested to hear if you had any theories about – You mean about the American election? Yes. Yeah. 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 You, you took the question okay. out of my mouth because oh, we, we, ha- we got – no, you're right. No, but I'm we saying, have to talk about it. We got to yeah. get to that. Even though we're over time, we got to get right. to it. Um, that's actually a new chapter in the – some kind of – Soviet, former Soviet, and new Russian approach to the United States. Actually, interestingly enough, that in the Soviet times, uh, Soviet KGB uh, were not allowed uh, to participate in active measurements of active, uh, it's called active measures on the territory of the United States. I don't know what was the reason, but it was a kind of at least according to what we know, it uh, KGB was allowed, actually, some kind of uh, recommended to participate in active measures in Europe, and they actively participating. But uh, for the territory of the United States, only gathering of information, collecting information, not any active measures. Arrival of Mr. Putin has changed this dramatically because for the first time for this last century, since 1917, Exactly. Mm-hmm. It will be one century from the uh, October socialist coup in in Russia. So they have changed this approach. Uh, FSB and GIU, it's a military intelligence, not only allowed, but they have kind of invited to participate in active measures on the territory of the United States. And they studied it not today, not yesterday. Uh, We can recall it from at least year 2006 because the first election, presidential elections in the United States, were election of year 2008 when the Soviet and Russian intelligence, let's say Freud, (laughs) speaks about this. Okay, so uh, Russian intelligence did participate actively in the elections of year 2008, actively working against election of Mr. McCain. Uh, that time was McCain, um, also Hillary uh, was participating, and there was Obama. And they ca- have calculated, I mean, the kind of intelligence, that the uh, worst case for them would be if McCain would be elected because McCain was participating in the Vietnam War. He has been taken prisoner of war. What does it mean, communism? He knows very, very well. So, and he has demonstrated his position uh, towards totalitarianism very, very clearly. So that is why out of all possible candidates, they found that Mr. McCain would be the worst possible candidate. And that is why they have organized several actions uh, that would put some kind of stuff on Mr. McCain and would distract uh, American electorate from participating and supporting McCain. It was year 2008. They were relatively accurately, but I saw it. Just I was able to see how they did do it. Strangely enough, Americans didn't bother, didn't care about this. Okay. Um, now, uh, in the election of year 2016, they also uh, calculated, and from their calculations, uh, it turned out that uh, Hillary Clinton would be worst candidate for him. Seems to me they have committed a mistake, but it's it's up to them. Okay, even such great people like them can make mistakes. Okay, but so anyway, so less, kind of, less pro-Trump, more anti-Hillary. Yeah, so that is why, as we all know, it was a very active uh, participation in a number of actions. Some of them we have some understanding. Some we even don't know yet much, but I hope it will be revealed soon through these investigations. So that is why, uh, because Mr. Trump had looks like special business interested in, in Russia. 
uh, looks like that some Russian business people and oligarchs did supply him with loans. Uh, looks like they have saved Mr. Trump from bankruptcy, not once with the Russian money. Looks like that uh, Russian business people bought a lot of property from uh, uh, Trump's projects in different places. Uh, since Mr. Trump traveled to Moscow participating in Miss Universe uh, competition, with uh, different ladies. It looks like Mr. Putin has a very particular attitude towards his participation there and even mentioned several times in his comments. So that is why they thought that Mr. Trump would be better candidate for them, better person whom they even work with them or produce pressure or to use some different instruments. So they were absolutely clear that Trump would be much better person. And even today, that looks like Mr. Trump turned out not completely as they have expected. Nevertheless, we still don't have any campaign, propaganda campaign against Mr. Trump in Russia. It's incomparable what we have seen just a few months ago against Obama or against overall United States. Even Mr. Trump, okay, sent his Tomahask to Syria or some kind of uh, Winston uh, to shores of North Korea. Nevertheless, it is interesting to see how reserved uh, Moscow propaganda towards Mr. Trump until today. So that is why it indicates that Mr. Putin himself still does not exclude possibility of special arrangement and special agreement between him and Mr. Trump. So, as we know, they are going to meet uh, relatively soon in July uh, in Germany, maybe even before, maybe in June somewhere in Europe. So, it cannot be excluded that some particular agreement, at least some particular uh, mutual understanding can be reached. So that is why we still don't know yet, but it cannot be excluded. Thanks for listening. This episode of Free Thoughts was produced by Tess Terrible and Evan Banks. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.